Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Women in the Word. My name's Amy Foster, and it's just always a privilege to be here with you. And to the West Campus friends, we're just delighted to do this study with you also, so welcome out there at the West Campus. I don't know about you, but I have uh, loved this study. I have loved contemplating the reality of friendship with God. And the truth is, I have my own sort of human view of friendship that doesn't always match God's, and, and maybe you do too. I can remember one of the very first things I ever learned about friendship, I'm quite sure my mother taught me, and maybe your mother taught you this too, she would say, Amy, in order to have a friend, you must be a friend, right? That's a human view of friendship, and it's sort of quid pro quo, isn't it? Um, if you want somebody to be friends with you, you have to act a certain way, you have to be friendly, and it suggests that we earn our friendship, and we uh, continue to earn our friendship all along the way, and if we stop acting like a friend, then the friendship is going to be over. I met a little girl in second grade who would become a lifelong confusing friend to me. One day she might be inviting me over and playing nicely with me and uh, wanting the best for me. And on any other day she might be saying ugly things about me and copying my ideas and working against me. Back and forth, that went for years until one day I was a junior in high school and I was walking out of a department store <laughs> carrying a garment bag with the most beautiful dress in the world, and I was going to wear it to the homecoming dance, and there outside the store I ran into my friend, um, my friend who had a, a big pattern of copying me, and uh, she asked to see the dress, and I knew I probably shouldn't show it to her, but I did, and she asked, did you buy it right here at the store, and I said yes, and you know how this story goes, don't you, because we know how girls are. The truth is, um, I'm standing in that dance two weeks later, and like any other high school girl, I have a plan. I wanna feel special, I wanna look beautiful, and that's hard to do when your friend walks in in the identical dress. <laughs> this was long before Facebook, but in an instant, I unfriended her. In my heart and in my mind, the friendship was over. I decided I will not continue to offer grace to her. She works against my plans. I'm not going to persevere in friendship with her. Um, in Genesis, we see some of God's friends also working against God's plans. And fortunately for them, and fortunately for us, God does not unfriend his friends, does he? the thing I love the most about him. He's faithful to his friends, and we call that grace. And God is also faithful to his plans, and we call that providence. No matter what, God perseveres with his friends and with his plans. We've talked much about God's grace lately. Uh, grace is the undeserved favor that we receive from God. It's the God of the universe agreeing to be friends with us. And we've seen in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that they are flawed individuals. Um, they regularly sin and God pursues them for friendship anyway. Um, and he continues in friendship with them. Actually, God's friendship is just a huge outpouring 
outpouring of his grace to all of us. But now God's providence is going to become a grand part of this story in Genesis. And providence is the reality that God is ruling and God is governing all of his creation. You know, Genesis begins with all the creative energy and power of God creating the world and the universe. And that energy and power doesn't go away after the world is made. God just redirects it now into accomplishing his plan for his creation and the universe. His providence is his hidden and his decisive power over everything. R.C. Sproul describes it this way, God owns what he makes and God rules what he owns. That is God's providence, working in everything to accomplish his plans. And what is God's plan? God's plan is, plan is that many people would turn to him, would repent of their selfishness and their sin, and would enter an eternal friendship with the God of the universe. That is God's plan for the world, and he will persevere with us, and he will persevere with that plan and bring it into fruition. One theologian says this, God's plan is not a rigid, detailed blueprint that straitjackets human behavior, and that is very true. Um, God's plan allows for human beings to make their own choices, even when those choices are flawed and sinful. God allows human beings, even as friends, to sometimes work against him, but he's not limited by our sin and he's not limited by our working against him. His providence instead works through all those things. Ephesians 1.11 really describes this character of God's when it says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then we see the same message in Daniel 4.35. And God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So all of life is under God's plan and God's control. We see that in Genesis. Our study today begins in chapter 36. And chapter 36 is a genealogy. And maybe you opened your Bible and thought, ugh, a genealogy, a long list of names, a long list of descendants. Um, this is the genealogy or the generations, the descendants of Esau. And genealogy, genealogies are in our Bibles for a purpose. Um, one of the purposes here, it answers the questions, what happened to Esau? Because we're not gonna hear much more about Esau as God's story continues. This is basically closing the chapter on Esau's life, but there's another purpose for this particular genealogy too. This one tells the story of God's grace and God's providence. It shows us God's perseverance with his friends. So before we start this genealogy, let's remember what the promises of God are. God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he entered this friendship with him, and he made a grand promise. He said, one day I'm gonna give you a land, and I'm gonna give you numerous descendants. I'm gonna bless you, and I'm gonna bless the world through you. And God would restate that promise over and over and over again. Well, God honored that promise. Abraham did have a descendant. He had a son, Isaac. And then Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, they prayed for a descendant. And you know, they prayed for a long time. And when Rebecca became pregnant, she was pregnant with twins. And God declared something to them from Genesis 25, 23. God said, two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. And so we know that that proved to be true. She did bear the twins, Jacob and Esau. So we see that God had promised to multiply Abraham's descendants and God had declared that from Rebekah, 
Twins would be born and two nations would develop, two separate nations. Chapter six begins, these are the generations of Esau. The twins were Jacob and Esau and we're gonna close the, the, the story of Esau here. We know that Esau took three wives, they were Canaanite wives and this genealogy begins with the wives and the fact that they had five sons. Now you're gonna be terribly disappointed with this but I'm not gonna read the genealogy to you. <laughs> I can't do it, it would be a mess and you don't wanna hear it. So we're not gonna read all of those names. Um, I do want to point out, we're gonna read a little bit beginning in verse six. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So what we see in these verses is that Esau leaves the promised land of Canaan and he goes into the hill country of Seir. This is south of the Dead Sea and the area is called Edom. And most likely Esau did this during the time when Jacob was away with Laban before Jacob even returned. In anticipation of his return and all their descendants and flocks, Esau leaves and goes to Seir. Now what's important in those verses is who's with Esau, wives, sons, daughters, livestock, property. You know what all those things mean? Blessing, blessing. Esau has been blessed. This is all showing us God's faithfulness. It's faithfulness to make Abraham's descendants numerous and to bless them. We see God's grace to Abraham in this genealogy and in this description of Esau's life. Esau wasn't the chosen son through whom God would carry on the covenant blessings, but he was nonetheless an offspring of Abraham, and God would be faithful to multiply Esau and his descendants because God would persevere in that way with them. Then the chapter goes on to describe from Esau's sons, there are grandsons, and among those sons and grandsons, some become the fathers of tribes. So we're seeing a bigger picture emerge. Then it goes on and it says within these tribes, there would be chiefs and there would be leaders and there would be heads of tribes and princes. So now we're seeing organized leadership. This isn't just a group of people wandering around in the desert here. They're tribes, multiple tribes that require organization and leadership. And then in verse 20, something different happens. Instead of a list of Esau's descendants, we get some unrelated people introduced here. They're not the descendants of Esau, they're the descendants of Seir the Horite. These were the people who lived in the land of Edom before Esau ever got there. And Esau came in and he conquered these people and he assimilated them. So among these descendants, there are also multiple tribes with leaders and chiefs and princes. It goes on just demonstrating how they grow and evolve into this nation. And then verse 31, something important happens. Read that with me. It says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And this is really important for two reasons. This description of kings who ruled in the land of Edom, this isn't a monarchy or a dynasty. These are unrelated people who, who rise up in leadership. But it just confirms to us that Edom has emerged as a powerful nation 
Not a band of people out in the desert, but a powerful nation from sons and grandsons to tribes with leaders and even with kings. And over all of it is, is Esau. Esau is the father of the Edomites. Now, the second reason verse 31 is important, it says, before any king reigned over the Israelites. And that's important because it shows you the two nations that are coming from Rebekah's womb. The second nation hasn't quite emerged yet, but it's really prophetic. The second nation is Israel, and it is going to emerge in the future. So the chapter of Esau's life closes with the birth of one nation, the nation of Esau. And the rest of the book of Genesis is about the birth of the nation of Israel. And all of the stories that we're going to read about Israel's birth, they revolve around the life of Joseph. And it's an amazing story. So if you're planning a trip or a field trip or anything like that, reschedule it. We've got about six weeks left. It's an amazing story. You're not going to want to miss a single piece of it. And the part that's beautiful about these remaining stories is that the providence of God, that shines over everything that happens in Joseph's life. It's this beautiful, hopeful, powerful thing that is orchestrating everything good and bad that happens. So previously... In Genesis, we read about the birth of Jacob's 12 sons, and we know that these sons were born through two wives, Rachel and Leah, and through two um, maidservants. The 12 sons would comprise the tribes of the nation of Israel, and God would ultimately give them the land of Canaan. He would make them a a great nation, and he would also bless them, and through them, he would bless the entire world. That is God's plan. And just so you understand how we fit into God's plan, God's son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be born among these tribes of Israel. The world would have the opportunity for redemption and an eternal friendship with God because Jesus would come through the nation of Israel. But it takes time to grow into a nation, and it takes time for children and offspring to become the mature people of God, and Israel would grow more slowly than Edom. And many have commented that spiritual things usually do take more time to grow, don't they? So the sons of Jacob are going to need some time to learn to grow and to work with God's plans, not against him. That's exactly what happens next. We're going to turn the page to chapter 37. Begin reading with me about the birth of the nation of Israel. Now Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph bought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. All right, you might remember back in chapter 32, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. This was that amazing encounter when Jacob wrestled with God all night long. And God changed his name to Israel, which means God's warrior or the one who has fought or contended with God and prevailed. And so if this is confusing to you, just make a note on your notes there. Jacob equals Israel. 
one person, two names. Um, the interesting thing here is um, when God changes someone's name, that suggests that their character has changed. And we definitely saw that in Jacob. Now, as we're reading here, I want you to notice the author of Genesis sometimes uses the name Israel and he sometimes uses the name Jacob. He's using the name Israel when Jacob is behaving from his new spiritually mature nature and he's using the name Jacob when he's back to his old nature and that is gonna be key to helping us understand some things here. Much is happening in these first four verses but, but the most significant thing is Joseph, son number 11, not son number one, Joseph is being distinguished as a significant player in God's future plans. And first, Joseph is distinguished by his father. It says that Joseph, among the younger sons, brings a bad report to his father. Now, bad report doesn't mean they're sleeping in, they're late on the job. Bad report actually means serious, wicked behavior, perhaps immoral behavior. So what this suggests to us, um, not so much that Joseph was a tattletale, it suggests to us that Joseph was probably morally upright. Um, winsome and earnest. It suggests to us that this wicked behavior bothered him, and that's why he reports it to his father. It also says that Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons. We know that favoritism had plagued this family for a very, very long time, but before we just chalk this up to sinful favoritism, we have to pay attention to the name that's used there, Israel. Israel loves Joseph more than the other sons. Um, this is suggesting that as he's, when Jacob is acting from his new spiritually mature nature, that's when he designates Joseph as special. It also says Joseph was the son of his old age, uh, most believe that's not as simple as he was born later in Jacob's life. They believe that that means he was the son born miraculously after many, many years of prayer. It also means that he was the son of wisdom, meaning Joseph possessed some spiritual wisdom that was surprising given his age and his experience. So whether it was simple favoritism on Jacob's part or whether it was recognizing God's special gifting and designation of Joseph, we just don't know. But we know this, Joseph was the favorite son and that almost always causes trouble and difficulty and conflict in any family. And the gift of the robe from his father marks him as distinguished and favored. So it probably was a long floor length robe, it probably had long full sleeves and it was covered with colorful embroidery. It was not the kind of robe you would wear out taking care of the sheep or the goats. It was not the kind of robe you would wear when you were sweating and working hard. It would signify or suggest um, exemption from hard labor, but more importantly, it would suggest, it would imply that you are the heir, the heir. And we know the heir is an important thing during this time, and the heir in this family was going to be a very tricky thing. In a culture that says the firstborn son is the heir, the leader, the possessor of the birthright and the blessing, well, that would be tricky because would it be the firstborn from the first wife who wasn't really the favorite wife? That's Reuben. Or would it be the firstborn from the second wife who was really the favorite wife? Tricky, huh? In case you're keeping a list of good reasons not to have two wives, you can add this to your list. Who is the firstborn, right? All we know for sure 
Joseph is distinguished. We don't know if his father is planning on making him the heir, um, but the robe makes his special status very public and visible, and that triggers one response from the brothers, and it's not sibling pride, it's hatred. They hate him. It says they can't speak peacefully to him. That's, that definitely means they can't say a single kind word to him. They cannot experience shalom or peace with their brother. So we know that they live together as a family in a house without peace and without kindness, instead with hatred. And hatred is intense dislike and intense hostility. And we know a little bit about hatred because Leah was hated in this family. That's how Leah has described herself in her prayers to God. So unfortunately, these brothers probably learned hatred at home. First, the father distinguished Joseph as the favorite, and then next, God will directly distinguish Joseph as an important son. Read with me how God does this, beginning in verse five. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamt. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamt another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamt? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. All right, well, dreams were important at this time. If you've been in this study of Genesis, you've already seen God uses dreams as a means to communicate his plan. He uses dreams to tell them what he's going to do. And you may remember that the father, Jacob, had a beautiful, glorious dream of a ladder that went all the way to heaven, and the Lord was standing at the top of that ladder communicating all the covenant blessings and promises to Jacob. And in response to that dream, Jacob professes his faith in God for the very first time. In the previous dreams we've seen in Genesis, usually God is the one speaking in the dream and God speaks the revelation. But this dream is different. This dream doesn't have God speaking. It requires an interpretation. And as we move forward in the book of Genesis, we're gonna see more of these kind of dreams, dreams that require interpretation. The interpretation of these dreams is pretty clear. We don't know for certain if Joseph recognized the interpretation or not, but his brothers certainly did, didn't they? Some people think Joseph looks like he's bragging here. Perhaps he really is the bratty little brother lording it over the older ones. Other people think, no, this really shows his innocence. It just shows his enthusiasm for God communicating his plans. I'm gonna be honest with you. I have changed my position on this. I used to think he sounded like the bratty brother. Um, I, I, I'm more inclined to think this is his enthusiasm for God because did you see how many times he says, behold, 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 and they don't respond well to that first dream and he comes back and tells them the second one anyway. 
I don't, I don't know what his motivations are. Um, we know based on how his brothers react that it may have been unwise to share this dream with them. Um, interesting things follow. So that's the first dream. Uh, the brothers interpret it very quickly. Little brother Joseph will reign and rule over the rest of us. Um, you know, this would be a hard, bitter pill for any older brother to swallow. Um, you just need to trust me on this because I grew up with brothers and I've raised three sons and they are born with this pecking order, alpha instinct that's real and it's just in them. So in a healthy family where brothers love each other, this would be a struggle. In an unhealthy family where brothers hate each other, this is going to be a hard pill for them to swallow. This is followed by a second dream when things are repeated in the scriptures, it usually suggests certainty. It suggests this thing is definitely going to happen. And we have an interesting insight um, from, from the rest of Joseph's life. Joseph would become a discerner of dreams. And Joseph would understand this idea of the importance of a dream being repeated, uh, a little peek into his future life on your verse sheet, Genesis 41, 32. This is Joseph speaking. And he says, and the doubling or the repeating of Pharaoh's dream, that means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So it's very significant that God gives Joseph not one but two dreams. And this second dream is greater. It includes the father and the mother also bowing down to Joseph. So it says that his father resents the idea of bowing down to his son, but a really interesting note here, he doesn't have the same reaction as the brothers. The brothers were jealous or filled with envy, but the father just keeps this saying in mind. He just holds on to that, pondering it. Um, the brothers instead filled with jealousy and envy. And unfortunately, we have to acknowledge that envy, like hatred, was also a part of their family history. Their, the mothers, Leah and Rachel, had been full of envy towards each other. That had been a, a regular part of their home life. Envy is defined as a discontent desire for another's advantage. And jealousy is very similar. It's a desire for someone else's attainment. And when you look carefully at the meaning of those words, envy and jealousy, you see both stem from discontent. Both come from discontent within that causes you to look out. They're petty emotions. They bubble up when one thing is happening, when we don't trust the plans and the providence of God. When we don't like how God is working in our circumstance, we look out and we envy and we're jealous and we want how God is working in someone else's life. I really think that is what is happening here. These are petty emotions. Um, God has a plan for these brothers and for this nation and it's a plan to bring them blessing and God is working to bring about that plan. Loyalty and unity, that was among the blessings God had prepared to give this nation. But the truth is God does not bless envy or jealousy or hatred. Petty emotions will delay the blessings of God for the nation of Israel and petty emotions delay the blessings of God for us as well. And the other observation I make here is that these petty emotions, they thrive when we don't trust God or his providence. Proverbs 27.4 says, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? 
These brothers are going to need to grow up. They're going to have to learn how to address these petty emotions so that they can experience the blessings that God intended for their family to have. Now, the father, um, Jacob, his response is different. He doesn't respond with envy or jealousy. It says he rebukes his son, but it also says he holds on to that and he ponders it. Um, He keeps it in mind. I think that Jacob must be considering here, God does speak in dreams. He has experienced that himself, and I think Jacob is probably wondering, is God's providence, is God's power going to work to bring this about? Because look what God's providence had already done in Jacob's life. It kept him safe all those years when he was out there with Laban. It kept him safely as he traveled back home. And it changed the murderous heart of his brother Esau, who went from wanting to kill him to falling before him and putting his arms around him and welcoming That was God's providence to be faithful to Jacob, and he had experienced it. So I believe that may be why Jacob listened to that dream, and he just considered, and he pondered it. But the brothers don't. They've got envy and jealousy and hatred running amok in their hearts and in their homes. And in short, there is a train wreck coming when those things are unchecked in our families. Let's start reading in verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that Reuben might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt." 
All right, Joseph is sent out to check on his brothers and report back. They're supposed to be at Shechem, which is 50 to 60 miles away. And you need to know Shechem may not be a safe place for the sons of Jacob to be wandering around alone. Shechem is where Simeon and Levi have brutally murdered all the men in retaliation for their sister's rape. But the brothers can't be found in Shechem. They've moved on to Dothan. And the interesting thing here is Dothan, not Shechem, is along the main trade route that extends down to Egypt. We really see the powerful hand of God silently at work here, putting all the players in just the right places. As soon as the brothers see Joseph coming, they say, oh, hooray, our brother's coming. No, not quite. They see him and they say, let's kill him. Let's kill him. And I thought you could just hear the contempt in their words. Let's kill the dreamer, the master of dreams, the dream man. I have brothers. This is how they talk to each other, even when they're not feeling murderous. Um, it, it's contemptuous language here. It is interesting that they call him the dreamer. That means the one empowered to prophetic dreams. That is exactly the gifting that God is going to use in Joseph's life in later years. That is exactly the gifting that God will use to protect the nation of Israel in the future. So they plan to kill the dreamer, but really it's a plan to kill the dream and whose dream was it anyway? It wasn't Joseph's dream, it was God's dream. It was revealing God's plan. And what they don't consider here, in rejecting their brother, they are rejecting God's plan, they are rejecting God's choice, all because they're carried away by their envy and their jealousy. They are rejecting God himself. Jesus said on John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And in verse 21, it says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Envy and jealousy cause us to become spiritually blind and not recognize the activity and the plans and the work of God. You know, just this week, it's Passion Week. I've been looking at Jesus last week on the cross, and I couldn't help but notice the people who oppose the Messiah, the plans of God, the religious leaders, it was envy and it was jealousy that blinded them. And even in their last act, when they hand Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified, it says Pilate knew they were envious. Envy and jealousy has the tendency to make us spiritually blind, and when we're blind, we will devalue the plans of God, we will oppose the plans of God, and we just need to know we're actually opposing God himself there. They don't see God's big plan because they're stuck in their own petty emotions. But God's providence is still at work here, even though it's hard to recognize. And it's hard for me to come to terms with this, but it is true. God's providence allows evil. Remember, it's not a straitjacket that dictates all of our behavior. He allows his creation to make their own choices and go their own way but his providence will work in the bad choices that we make. One theologian says this, the divine mouth remains silent while the divine hand so much more strongly holds. That's what we see God doing.
doing here. His silent hand is controlling things even in the most unlikely of places. He's controlling things in the actions of Reuben here, the eldest son. And we need to remember just two chapters back, Reuben has behaved terribly and disgraced his father. Now Reuben intervenes and persuades the brothers not to kill Joseph, just throw him in a pit instead. Reuben has a plan to come back and rescue Joseph. So what we see here is the possibility that Reuben is now valuing his father in a way that he hadn't before. Um, Reuben was successful in saving Joseph's life, but he was not successful in coming back later and rescuing him out of the pit. So Joseph arrives unsuspecting. They strip him of the robe and they throw him in the pit. And you need to know that means they left him for dead. The only description we have of this pit is no water in it. You have to remember this is a desert land and so no water means no life. They've left him there to die, and they walk away wringing their hands, very worried. No, they don't. They sit down to eat. They have thrown their brother in a pit to die, and they sit down to eat. How callous, how void of grief and remorse and human compassion. And I read that, and I thought, don't you think they could hear Joseph yelling for help while they sit and eat? And you know what? They could. They could. Years later, they will experience grief and remorse. Listen to how they'll describe it. Genesis 42, 21. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. So I want you to have that picture in your mind. They have stripped him and thrown him in a pit and they're expecting him to die and he's begging for life and they sit down to eat. It's a hard picture to come to terms with, but God allows evil and his providence is at work. His providence shows up in another unlikely place. There's a caravan coming down the road. They're headed to Egypt to sell their goods. Sometimes the people here are called Ishmaelites and other times they're called Midianites. You just need to know those two terms um, were used interchangeably. That means mixed Arabian descent. Um, they actually were the descendants of, of Abraham, um, both the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. And so they come along on this trade route and now Judah Judah, the brother, speaks up and says, there's no money to be made in killing him. Let's sell him instead. His motives certainly seem suspect here. Um, he doesn't want to get blood on his hands, and he likes the idea of making a profit. But I want to challenge you to see this a little differently. What if Judah's motives were honorable here? What if Judah thinks this is the only possible way to keep Joseph alive? Because the thing we have to remember, both Reuben and Judah they know who their brothers are, and they remember their ruthless, reckless, murderous behavior in Shechem, where they killed all of these men. They know that that's part of their brother's character. What if Judah is afraid for Joseph's life, and he sees this as the only way to stop the murder? We don't know, but either way, we totally recognize God's providence is at work. He's getting Joseph out of that deadly pit, and he's getting Joseph far away from his murderous brothers. So they sell him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. That was the common slave price for the day. And so now we have Joseph, the favorite son, sold as a slave and being carried against his will out of the promised land. What have the brothers done? Have they just gotten rid of their pesky little brother? Have they just appeased their envy or their jealousy? They have opposed the plans of their friend, God. 
God. They have opposed God. They've cast off a member of the family of Abraham in their petty emotions. They too have become totally spiritually blind and they're opposing God. And I have to stop and think, we do this too. And not just in our, in our family of origin, but God has put us in this big family, the church, and we're supposed to be the means of blessing to the world. And God has told us that the work Jesus did on the cross, that created unity for us. He broke down all the barriers and the things that divide us. But we allow jealousy and envy to invade our hearts and here within the church, that, that stops us from being the blessing that God has attended for us to be in the world. We do it too, all these petty emotions left unchecked cause us to harm each other and to devalue the plans of God. Now, in case you have a tendency to think, well, jealousy and envy, I can hide that in my heart. That's a lesser sin. I want you to read Galatians 5, 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, big sins, right? Strife, jealousy, anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. All big sins. All sins are serious. Just like the nation of Israel, we have to deal with anything that causes us to sin because it causes us to oppose the plans of God. But God's providence will continue and his plans won't be thwarted. We will just find ourselves missing out on the blessings and acting like immature friends. The brothers will continue in their deception. They need to cover up what they've done here and they need to deceive their father and it goes along and creates um, the perfect fractured family. Begin reading in verse 31 with me. Then they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it, whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and he said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and he put sackcloth on his loins and he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. All right, the brothers have this plan now to deceive their father. Um, Notice their character and their callousness here. First, they lie. We found this robe. We know that's not true. But then just the callous nature, the way they speak to their father, more like a police detective than a compassionate son. Please identify whether this is your son's or not. How callous, how terrible they're treating their father. I want you to remember this. I want you to remember who they are because God's grace is going to do a miracle in their lives and God is going to stick with them in friendship and we're gonna see the fruit of that. In later years, they are going to be so repentant and so remorseful about the callous way they treat their father and their brother. Well, seeing the bloody robe, Joseph draws the conclusion that his favorite son is dead and that the plans of God have been stopped. 
and we get a little deja vu in the story. This chapter ends with a fractured family and there's going to be a 20 year period of separation for all of them. And in case you don't remember where we've seen that before, back in chapters 26 and 27, after Jacob deceived his own father and stole the blessing and the birthright from his brother, there was a 20 year separation for that family also. And the moral of that story is God does not bless envy, jealousy, hatred, or deception. But God is also gracious. He doesn't unfriend these friends. He just requires them to grow and become the mature nation of Israel so blessings can come through them. And in all of these chapters, we have seen that reality. God will discipline those whom he loves. And this is a discipline that occurs here. The discipline would be severe and everyone will share in the suffering, not just Jacob. I do want you to notice we're using the name Jacob here, not Israel. Jacob would grieve without hope. Jacob would grieve well beyond the customary period of grieving. It appears that his children do start feeling some compassion for them as they try to comfort him. But Jacob mourns one son so severely that he refuses the comfort and love and affection of the 11 who are living around him. Jacob shows all the old signs of favoritism, all the old hurts and wounds that trigger petty emotions come back, and the family is fractured. But God perseveres. Verse 36 begins, meanwhile, and you need to know, meanwhile is the most important word in this whole chapter. Meanwhile, the Midianites have sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. Here's how we translate that word, meanwhile. Stay tuned, folks. Exciting scenes from our next episode. That's totally what that means. Meanwhile means God's story isn't over. It doesn't end with a fractured family because God's providence is more powerful than sin. God allows sin, but he is more powerful than it, and he will work through it to accomplish his plans Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So meanwhile, Joseph becomes a slave. He goes to Egypt and God moves Joseph right into the middle of a great circle of power and influence. Meanwhile, the future will reveal God's providence. The future will reveal that God uses all these circumstances to protect the immature nation of Israel. But the truth is, it's very easy to recognize God's providence on the other side, isn't it? When all the facts have played out, when the details have been explained, and we see the good results, it is much more difficult to trust God's providence on the front end. Um, when we can't see the end results. Um, to trust in God's providence, we have to trust that God is a persevering friend. Joseph would have to do this, and we have to do this too, so how do we do this? I think we can trust in the providence of God when we remember God's story is the main story. Our story is just a thread that runs through it. In other words, it's not about you. It's about God, and his story is pretty big. Joseph knew God's big plan and his God's story. He knew God is going to create a nation here so he can bless the world. And the truth is, we know God's story and his plan too. God is creating the kingdom of God here on earth 
so that we can bless the world. That's God's big story. We need to remember that. To trust his providence, we also need to remember God's stories always include both grace and providence. It occurred to me Joseph would have no Bible verses to memorize and claim during his years in Egypt. He would have no spiritual teachers or mentors or lessons to hold on to. How would he remember God's grace and God's providence? Maybe he would remember the story of his uncle Esau. Esau, who wasn't even a friend of God's, but God's grace and his providence prevailed in his life. Maybe he would remember the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We have all of those stories and we have our own. So we have to remember the stories to recall God's grace and his providence. We can also trust God by dealing with the petty emotions that spring up in our heart. We have to know these petty emotions can blind us to God's plans, can thwart our receiving the blessings intended for us, so we need to deal with them. And we cannot get stuck in despair or hopelessness the way Jacob does. The truth is getting stuck simply wastes your pain. We've seen over and over and over again, sometimes these hard times are discipline. They're intended to grow us and mature us. They're not intended to punish or penalize us. They're God's tools for growth. They're opportunities for us to be useful in God's kingdom. And I have one more thought on how we trust in God in these times. I didn't include it on your list because I just thought of it last night. We have to always know there's a meanwhile coming for all of us. We're in the middle of our story, no matter what's happening. It's not the end. There is a meanwhile coming. Sometimes God's plans, sometimes the sin that happens around us, sometimes the providence of God These things put us in places we don't wanna go, places that look bleak and terrible. We have to know there's a meanwhile coming. We have to know that God's steadfast love, God's sure plans, they never fail because God is a persevering friend. Thanks, let's pray. God, you are good and your goodness to us is beyond anything that we can understand in human terms. So we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your friendship. We thank you that you sent your son so that we could be in friendship with you forever. Um, We just pray that you would work in our hearts and work in our lives and mature us so that we can also be persevering friends with you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.